sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian flying solo this week, but you can always get involved in the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com, and on Instagram, it's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Full tilt into the holidays, the most rock and roll of all holidays. In fact, New Year's Eve, we're headed there, and I went looking for some New Year's Eve rock and roll stories for this week. But first, let's talk about New Year's Eve in general. Uh, You know, this is something that gets celebrated basically across cultures and across the world, and it's been going on. For a long time. Mesopotamia, 2000 BC, they've traced like an 11-day festival that used to happen in that time period. That's going hard. The ancients could go hard because I'll tell you now, especially the older I get, I need things to be done in about three hours. Not three days, definitely not 11 days. So that's a pretty big, epic party. And, you know, you look all across the world and there's some sort of celebration usually involving a lot of noise happening around the celebration of the new year. So in the Czech Republic, this is true, they actually bill New Year's as the the noisiest day of the year. Uh, <laughs> music, parties, uh, fireworks, those things are, are typically involved in all of these celebrations. There's other things that aren't involved in all of the celebrations. I did find that in Italy, uh, it is traditional to wear red underwear to celebrate the new year. I'm not doing that right now, just FYI. Uh, A dozen grapes get eaten in Spain and Portugal. That's like a symbolic thing that they do. But in most places, there's something exploding. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a rock show on New Year's Eve. I I had to work when I was in radio at a Kid Rock New Year's Eve rock show. I did not stay the whole time. I was there for a little bit. I, I will say, if there is an artist that seems like they match the debauchery level that you would expect for a New Year's Eve celebration. Kid Rock would be the guy. Like, that made sense to me. That felt like a good booking, even though I didn't want to stick around and see it myself. Craziest New Year's Eve I've ever had. I remember one near the end of college, I think, out with a bunch of buddies that just became one of these, like, cinematic type of long nights that kept stretching and rolling from party to party. And... I do remember at one point sneaking into a venue in which there was a full brass band playing Soul Man and dancing on the dance floor and then like dancing our way out before security caught us. So, you know, there's different levels of party that happen depending on who you are and uh, where you are living and, and maybe how old you are, right? Your, your best New Year's Eve now may be just turning all of the noise off and sitting in your living room once the kids go to bed, right? I mean, there, there's like... There is a phase. There is a time. Turn, turn, turn. So I don't know what era of New Year's Eve party or celebration you're in right now in your personal life, but for the purposes of the show, we're going to go pretty full tilt into a couple of crazy New Year's Eve stories. And the first one we're going to go to is uh, it's the late 70s, and we're going to start with the boss, Bruce Springsteen. We've actually not talked that much about Bruce Springsteen on the show before. I think he comes up on the Ticketmaster episode. But I think the reason we are careful about how much we talk about Bruce is that you, you, you've got to love Bruce. Like, you can't fake talking about Bruce because people who love Bruce will call you on that shit. 
It's like talking about the Grateful Dead. You've got to approach it with a little bit of reverence, knowing that there's somebody listening who knows way, way more than you do. You know, I, I could talk about Randy Bachman and probably be the guy who knows the most in the room about Randy Bachman, right? But any random room I walk in, there's going to be somebody who's like, I've seen Springsteen 46 times, bro. So you got to be careful. You got to tread carefully. So I, I, I like Springsteen, but I'm more of a, I listen to Born to Run a lot and think Jungle Land is really good sort of Springsteen fan, not a 46 times and I have the bootlegs to prove it kind of fan. I will say, quick side note, if you've not seen the movie Blinded by the Light, I highly recommend that. That's based on the true story of this journalist named Safraz Manzur and how he grew up in the 80s in Luton, uh, in Britain, as a British Pakistani Muslim teenager who hears Springsteen and lets it change his life. And what's so interesting in the story is that, like, because of where it, it's like 87, so Springsteen's past, like, the critical darling phase of his career, and he's in the tunnel of love phase of his career, and this awkward Pakistani teenager is talking about Springsteen all the time, and all his peers are like, that's like old man music, right? Even though it's not that far removed. And it's it's just, it's an amazing story. It's really well told, really well put together. The acting, the the songs, the way they portray the feeling of hearing those songs and really being moved by them in film is is very well done. So big recommend if you haven't seen it. But set that to the side. Let's get to our story for today. So our story, our New Year's Eve Springsteen story, puts us in Cleveland, Ohio, December 31st, 1978. Now, let me give you a little context for this. If you're a casual Springsteen fan, this is the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. And it's the end of the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour, which is important in Bruce history because this album and this tour mark a big moment. And and what is thought of as a return for Springsteen, even though his career hadn't been going on that long at that point. If you know anything about Springsteen history, the summer of 76, Springsteen gets in a court battle with his first producer and manager, this guy named Mike Appel. Like most court battles in our stories on this show, this all has to do with publishing rights. And Bruce was in a really bad deal that he signed with Mike, and it gets very dramatic, and eventually gets settled in favor of Bruce. But the whole process, during this whole period, from like 76 to 78, for almost two years, Bruce is not able to record. So he's writing like a crazy man and not recording it. So when he gets back in the studio, he comes out not with this repeat of the hopeful enthusiasm that characterized Born to Run Bruce. He comes out with his angry, jaded, wiser Bruce. If you know Darkness, I mean, first of all, Darkness on the Edge of Town, amazing album title. The cover, if you've ever seen that cover of him just in the t-shirt, amazing album cover. Songs on there, Candy's Room, Adam Raised a Cane, The Badlands. These were adult songs. Right, These weren't wide-eyed, baby, we were born to run, sort of aspirant love songs. These were songs about life is, is real tough, and it may not get better. Early Springsteen, it was like, life is tough, but we're tough, right? And, and he's been beaten down a little bit at this point. This is a quote from Stephen Van Zandt about when these guys get back on the road, because... 
when he gets the band back on the road, it is a big deal. And here's what Stephen Van Zandt says. The birth of that album was tough. We came out of it with a lot of energy. That was our first significant tour when we really started to blow minds. We got around the country and people were coming and seeing the energy that we were communicating. We started to build an audience and that audience has stayed with us to this day. So there is this sort of school of thought that had it not been for that court battle, that two-year period, which, remember, no internet, so no one really knows what's going on. Springsteen just disappears after Born to Run for two years. And after this period, if it wasn't for that period, the trajectory of Bruce into this cultish figure who commands and demands that sort of fandom that, that I've just described and discussed, that could have, that maybe might not have happened. Because the cult around his performance really starts to form on the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. Okay? So this particular New Year's Eve show, it's part of a two-night stand that's going to finish the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour. They're finishing it. And this is the third time that the tour has been in Cleveland. So the tour's not been that long. It's been like half of 78. It's been in Cleveland three times. Springsteen comes from Jersey. I mean, you know that. He won't let you forget it, and neither will Jersey. But Cleveland is often considered his second home. And this has a lot to do with the power of radio in the late 70s. You know I'm an old radio guy, so I like to talk about this. There's a station called WMMS, and they adopt Springsteen. Just when he takes off, they... They are big supporters. They're playing him all the time. They're playing his music. He also has a group of fans from various parts of Northeast Ohio who call themselves the Cleveland Boys. That's the sort of devotion that he drives. Springsteen, because of these two factors, has performed in Ohio more than 80 times in his career. This is a quote from a historian, Peter Shakarian, who is from Ohio and has written quite a bit about Springsteen. It was a bit of a perfect storm. Springsteen speaks to Clevelanders in a way that resonates with them. Everyone here can relate to what he's singing about on his albums. That blue-collar, working-class sort of ethos. That struggle. And that's the thing, right? You always hear that about Springsteen? The working-class hero thing? Now, the working-class hero Jersey Boy aesthetic translates very easily to a city built on a century of making steel, which is what Cleveland is. So, you know, they are very similar. But there's more context. There's even more context to the energy that's in the room on 1231 of 78 in Cleveland, Ohio. One of the two shows that Springsteen had already done in Cleveland on this tour was back in August, which, you know, not that long before. But, and if we have any hardcore Springsteen fans listening, they're yelling at their devices right now because they know what I'm talking about. August, Cleveland, 1978, that is Agora. Now, you might be listening and being like, what are you talking about? (laughs) What is the word you just said? May sound just like a word to you, but if you're a Springsteen person, if you're a fan, a real fan, like I described up top, the 48 shows and the bootlegs to prove it kind of fan, Agora is legendary. Agora is the bootleg. In Springsteenies, Agora refers to a particular show recorded at the Agora Ballroom in Cleveland, Ohio, August 9th, 1978. Now, this is considered by many fans and most critics to be maybe the most essential live recording ever done by Springsteen in the E Street. Rolling Stone said of the recording, quote, 
This is simply the greatest live LP this greatest of live rockers has ever officially released. That's from Rolling Stone. Now, you know I love to talk about rock and roll venues, so let's do a little venue education for those who don't know Cleveland's rock and roll history. The Agora Ballroom opens in the 60s as a college dance club. It's members only. It moves locations a few years in. It gets a little closer to Finn College. In 74, Agora starts taking chances booking some touring acts. They get an act called the Velvet Underground to play in Cleveland at one point. And then they also ink a deal with WMMS Radio. So here's their deal. They're like, yeah, we're in Cleveland. We're not New York, LA, or Chicago. So we could book some of these acts who are going in between those places on Mondays or on Tuesdays, right? Which are not the money-making days. Not the days, you know, it's harder to go see a show on a Monday or Tuesday, even now. But they're like almost off nights for some artists. So we'll get them on Monday or Tuesday, and then we'll we'll get MMS in on the deal. MMS will record the show, and then they'll play it on Wednesdays. So now there's all this motivation for these artists to play Cleveland because they get added exposure because they get radio, and they get to use a night that they that they might not use otherwise they use a monday or tuesday so that's the deal and this deal makes them legendary throughout the 70s the agora presented first time touring acts like springsteen he hits the club for the first time in 74 bad company kiss frampton the charlie daniels band aerosmith they all come through the agora ballroom eventually there's a small fire in october of 84 the club will close Three years later, it will reopen in a new location, and it continues to operate today. There's an Agora Ballroom in Cleveland, Mod Sun, Blue October, Skillet, all going to play there in the next few months. Now, as I mentioned, this show that makes the venue legendary to Springsteen fan happens in August of 78, and it was meant to be the WMMS anniversary party because they are now 10 years old. They started in 68. So they convinced Springsteen's people to do this show in Cleveland because they say, listen, we're going to turn this into a marquee event. Now, he's already getting a little too big for the Agora. I think at this, at this point, the Agora holds about 700, 800 people. And so this is what they decide to do for concerts, for concert tickets. And this stresses me out because I've been part of giving away limited amount of tickets to small venue concerts for big artists. This was a thing I did for a while. And it's a lot because people get real intense. But they they decide they're going to make the tickets free. And they basically hold a lottery. So you have to, because it's the 70s, you have to drop off a self-addressed stamped envelope at this record store chain. And then the radio station people and the record store people will pick 375 names at random from the thousands of requests that were received and then get them in their self-addressed named envelope, send them two tickets. Even with the tickets, it was a GA venue. So you get the tickets and then you don't know where you're going to be in the venue. So people start camping outside the venue the night before to get a space in line. Now, again, because they had to convince Springsteen's people to do this, they WMMS at this point leverages a network of radio stations to guarantee that this show is going to get broadcast to like 3 million people because they get seven other stations on board. So they have 
not only Cleveland, but Pittsburgh, Chicago, Columbus, Cincinnati, Minneapolis, Detroit, and St. Louis are all also going to broadcast the show. So all of these factors, exclusivity of actual attendance, small venue, small market, energy of live broadcast, and the quality of the live broadcast, because they let John Landau run the mix, uh, these all play a part in creating something that is pretty much accepted as the greatest Bruce bootleg ever. And the most widely circulated concert bootleg in history. It does actually get released. You can buy it now. Uh, 2014, Springsteen's camp released a version of it. But Columbia wasn't even concerned about trying to release it. Like they let the boot happen because of the quality and because they knew it was because it was on so many radio stations, it was going to be really hard to control. So they just let it happen. So that thing floated around from 78 to 2014 without anybody monetizing it. So that's the first Darkness on the Edge of Town tour show in Cleveland. And then three weeks later, he comes back because, you know, only 750 people got to see him. And so they go to the Richfield Coliseum, which is outside of Cleveland, 20,000-seater. The Cavs used to play there. And in 1975, a few years before this, Muhammad Ali and Chuck Webner played there, which (laughs) inspired the movie Rocky. So... It was a pretty historic venue. It also was just a regular concert venue. During its existence, it existed uh, until 94. And the very first show it ever held was Frank Sinatra. And the very last show it ever held was Roger Daltrey. Um, So it closes in 94 and they demolish it in 99. They literally build this thing in Richfield, outside of Cleveland, in a bunch of fields. And they called it the Palace on the Prairie. That was the, I mean, it was literally part of the whole marketing scheme was that they built it outside of town so they could accommodate a bunch of traffic. And the show goes so well when they come back and play that second show three weeks after the the tiny show that after the show is over, Springsteen and his band go back to the Agora Ballroom because Stephen Van Zant's old band... Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes is playing at the Agora that same night. So they drive back to Cleveland from Richfield. They show up back on stage at the Agora that night and play three songs with Southside Johnny. So I explain all of that to help you understand the frenzy around the return of Bruce, even if it is for a third time for that New Year's Eve show in December of 1978. You got it? This town freaking adores this guy. There's a guy named Troy L. Smith published a piece on cleveland.com back in 2021 entitled How Bruce Springsteen Made Northeast Ohio His Second Home in the 1978 Darkness Tour. And it's helped inform this story hugely, and I borrow heavily from it here now. On this night, December 31st, Springsteen will play 28 songs, including several that would appear on the track list for The River almost two years later. But this concert becomes most known for one infamous moment. Now, up top, we were talking about New Year's Eve traditions across the world, remember? And what did I say? You might not wear red underwear. You might not eat the grapes. But you're definitely being noisy. You're definitely being loud and raucous and debauched, probably. And there's a very large possibility that you're shooting fireworks. That just happens in most New Year's Eve celebrations for some reason. So, 
towards the end of a cover of Roy Roy Brown's Good Rocking Tonight at the Bruce Springsteen Show, a fan gets out of control in their revelry and throws a lit firecracker on stage. I don't know. Have have you ever had a close call with a firecracker? I was not allowed to play with firecrackers, fireworks. I remember as a kid getting an opportunity to light a snake at one point. Like, you know, the little snake firecracker popper things. That's my impression of them. Uh, And that freaked me out enough, right? So I wasn't really getting to play with actual artillery. As an adult, I've gotten to do that a few times. That's pretty fun. But, you know, things can get out of control pretty quickly when you're dealing with things that explode. And so for Bruce, this is a very close call. They're playing the song. A fan lights and throws a firecracker, and it hits Bruce Springsteen on the right side of his face, and then it explodes. Band members will gather around their leader, and eventually they're going to escort him off the stage. Now, I know we think a little bit differently now about Stephen Van Zandt because of The Sopranos, but can you imagine pissing him off? He comes out and starts yelling at the crowd, telling them to get their act together. How dare you, etc., etc. And then, a few minutes later, Springsteen is back. He walks on stage with a bandage on the right side of his face. He steps up to the microphone and he says, the only thing I ask is that people don't do stuff to hurt other people and to hurt themselves and to hurt me and whoever else is up here on this stage. Because we came here to play some rock and roll for you. And then the show goes on. (laughs) The writer Lawrence Kirsch, he's written several books about the boss. He puts it this way. This is his quote. If that would have happened to 99.9% of other performers, that would have been the end of the show. But Bruce was not going to miss the revelry of New Year's, celebrating with the rest of the band and his fans who provided him with such loyalty and support. He just blasted on into the rest of the set and then into an encore. And that's the story of Bruce Springsteen getting hit in the face with a lift firecracker. So, Happy New Year's Eve. do another one yep for another new year's eve tale all right i did find another pretty good one and this one also involves noise a band at a turning point in their career and fire and getting hit in the face it's it's crazy how similar these stories are this one actually happens before the spring scene story let's let's roll the clock back a few more years for this one we'll drop into december 31st 1973 1973 we leave the midwest we traded in for new york city and let's just cut straight to it. I, I don't know what you know about history, but if you know anything about the history of Kiss, December 31st, 1973 is a pretty important date. It is popularly considered and generally referred to as Kiss's official music industry premiere, New Year's Eve, 1973. 
Now, up to this point, Kiss has been honing their ideas doing club shows. But this night is really the first night that they get to be on a stage in front of a crowd of a pretty decent size. And just imagine this for a second. Imagine Kiss without a crowd. That's the funny part of this story to me, right? Sort of mediocre at best. Like, especially the stuff they're playing at the time. I mean, they're like these, I'm not going to say rockabilly, but they're like these southern rock songs. Some of them, they're very, very cookie cutter and, you know, not that impressive. What makes Kiss impressive, and I realize it's not fair because Murdoch is not here right now to defend Kiss. This feels very sacrilegious to be talking about Kiss without Murdoch. So we may have to follow up with him. But just imagine Kiss without a crowd, and then imagine Kiss getting that first chance with a crowd. This means that until this night, no one has really seen the spectacle. No one has seen the costumes. In fact, I read this piece that said, as late as that afternoon, December 31st, 1973, Kiss co-manager at the time, Joyce Bogart, and her then-husband, Neil Bogart, who had just signed the band to his new label, Casablanca Records, They were out raiding stores in the West Village, specifically the sex shop, the Pleasure Chest, to find spiked dog collars for the band to wear on stage. They also hired a fashion designer to help create leather clothing that Kiss would wear that they had conceived of with Bill Acoin, of course, their manager. Now, this is a big debut, and this is going to happen at BAM. Do you know BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music? Still exists. You ever spend any time there in New York City? It's it's a flashy place. And now, you know, there's ballet and stuff that'll happen there and theater and all sorts of arts. But 1973, they're throwing a hell of a show. You know, it actually wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be a Kiss show. Kiss was not supposed to be on the bill. Their manager, Bill O'Coin, gets them added to this show on the day of. He calls Warner Brothers. And it's like, listen, you got to let him have the first 30 minutes. And Warner Brothers tries. They're like, okay, we'll do it, but no makeup. And Bill's like, no, we're not doing that. This is the first time I've got him in front of a big crowd. We're, we're doing all of the makeup. So eventually they end up getting their 30-minute opening slot with makeup. The first band was actually supposed to be a group called Teenage Lust. I found a quote. This is Harold C. Black. He's speaking. We were there to open the show. It was a big night. Didn't expect anybody else to be on the bill before us. And then kiss happened. They had a giant sign hanging from the ceiling. Light bulbs, flash pots, flames, gadgets, gizmos. Everything that had nothing to do with music. I love that quote. Everything that had nothing to do with music. We in Teenage Lust had this small light up with Christmas lights sign that we cut out of styrofoam. They had a major Las Vegas-style light bulb sign. And it was like, if you pardon the expression, and I'm still quoting Harold C. Black here from Teenage Lust, oh, fuck, not exactly what you want to go on after. I mean, you hear this quote, right? Kiss shows up with a lot of tricks up their sleeves. Not good form for an opening band. I mean, this is, you know, having dealt with live entertainment and rock bands. I remember specifically years ago, I I was actually going to observe a group of folks who were throwing a sort of one-night music festival style thing. And they had booked 
a couple of bands way in advance. And they had done it through record labels and record labels have sort of tried to sell them on this idea that, Hey, these bands are going to be big when the show happens. But at the time they weren't big yet. Right. So they were taking a gamble and this gamble majorly paid off. So it was, it was in the country genre. I won't say who it was, but there were, I just remember hearing stories that because of how things had happened, the bill was out of whack. The headliner at the time was when they booked the show was a big deal. But the night of the show, the band they had booked to open actually had a hit song that was everywhere. And so there was all this fighting about how much gear are you allowed to have on the stage? What sort of production can you do, et cetera, et cetera, because this band on the way up was sitting in the front slot because they got booked a year before when they were a nobody band. And I thought of that when I read this, right? It's this idea that you've got this band that's literally never played in front of a large group of people before showing up in costume, in makeup, with full production, with a lighted sign. Like the audacity of all that is crazy. So, as a part of this, I mean, if you're a KISS fan, you can't even conceptualize of KISS without the presence of fire. KISS has always had fire, right? Back then, though, they didn't have any idea of the mechanics of that, right, up to this point before this show. So, Bill O'Coin, as they're getting their stage show prepared in the weeks before, he had called a magician who he had seen do a fire trick. And this, I read a couple different things. One of the things I read said that he his name was Presto. The other one was, I think Gene Simmons in an interview called him Amazo or something. So this magician is named Amazo or Presto. It's, it's good either way, in my opinion. He comes, I mean, because remember, Kiss isn't a thing yet, really. These are just guys. I mean, and, and if you listen to our Kiss episodes, we have several of them. And we talk about this. If you go back to, I think it's Kiss versus Satan, and there's an episode on Kiss and uh, Van Halen. But Kiss, when they first started, were guys that were in other rock bands that were not successful. And they kept trying to figure out what their gimmick was. Like, how are they going to get successful? So this was very, I mean, I, and I, I think Murdoch would say if he was here, part of the reason, like there, there's like this understanding with Kiss that it is all a show to the point that because it's all a show, it's okay that it's ridiculous because everybody's in on the joke. If you know what I'm saying. And Bill O'Coin at some point is like, I saw a clown. <laughs> let me call him. So he calls this clown. This clown shows up. Let me read. Let me just read a quote from Gene. We were in our manager's office and there was a guy named Amazo or something. And he came in and said, Hey, check this out. We're in this small office and he's sitting on the couch, and he goes, and fire shoots out of his mouth, and it singes the ceiling. And we were like, whoa, that's cool. Is he going to be an opening act? (laughs) And Bill goes, no, one of you is going to spit fire during the show. And we're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Gene, this is Gene talking. He says, I thought that Bill had said, okay, which one of you doesn't want to spit fire? But what he actually said was, which one of you wants to spit fire? 
I put my hand up, thinking I was saying that I didn't want to do it. The other guys heard correctly, and they didn't put their hands up. So Bill looks at me and goes, okay, you're spitting fire, Gene. Anyway, I got the words mixed up, and I became the guy spitting fire on stage. Of course, Gene, now legendary for this, right? So along with all the other things that are they're going to try on stage for the first time in front of this big audience on New Year's Eve, Kiss and Gene are going to play with fire, literally. So let's talk about the set list. If you're a Kiss fan, I'm, I'm just going to let you have it. They come on stage and they play Deuce. Then they play Cold Gin. Then they play Nothing to Lose. And the fourth song in the set is the song Firehouse. I don't know what your thoughts and feelings are on the song Firehouse. It's basically a high school Paul Stanley ripping off the move. If you know the move, if you if you don't know the move, British band, look them up. Look up this song called Fire Brigade. Right? Like, Paul Stanley is on the record. He was ripping off that song. But it's a song that had been in the repertoire for a while. They knew it pretty well. They were playing it before they were Kiss. Like I was saying, like when they were in other bands. And if you're going to do something with fire on stage, do it in a song in which you yell the word fire. That makes sense. So on New Year's Eve, 1973, Kiss, in their surprise debut, start into Firehouse, and Gene takes a stab at Presto's bullshit trick. The crowd erupts. And so does Gene's hair. Now, if you don't know how this works... It's kerosene in the mouth, a torch in front of him. So torch is going. He somehow gets kerosene in like his cheek and spits it. And then it looks like he's breathing fire, which is pretty dope. But it caught with such gusto that it caught his hair as well. And if you want to see video of this, oh, hell yeah, it exists. And it is in the show notes. Gene Simmons setting his hair on fire at the band's industry debut. It's it's remarkable. Uh, more commentary from the guy from Teenage Lust watching side stage. Quote, and then Gene's hair went on fire, and I was like, is that part of the act? How do they do that? Now, that's a common reaction. When it happens, people, when you hear Gene tell this story, of course, too, because he sort of colors over everything, he'll tell you that everyone just thought it was part of the act. There's a roadie who happens to be close to him, and you can see it in the video, just happens to have a towel and, like, jumps on his head. So they take care of it pretty quickly. And the other funny thing is, if you hear Kiss talk about this, Gene will go on to do this an estimated at least six or seven times over the course of several years. Firehouse, also one of the most played songs in their repertoire. It is estimated to have been played. I don't know. I, I ran across some number of how many times they played it. They play it most nights still. If they're playing, they're probably playing Firehouse. That's a standard concert moment for him to do this. And so, I mean, if you think about it, thousands of times playing it, only setting your hair on fire like seven of those is pretty good. Still not great. <laughs> Still not great if you're the guy whose hair it is. But it, it, you would think the story would end there. It does not. This set, that's only song four, right? 
the insanity goes on. Song five is Let Me Know, which is a song I really enjoy, but also, again, like a fucking Southern Rock goofball song. Let me be your Sunday driver. Uh, Song number six, 100,000 Years. Now, Gene Simmons, again, we're going to go to his quote. He told this story on the Let There Be Talk podcast. We do 100,000 Years, which is which Paul and I wrote, and he said it's like based on a book. We had a candelabra on stage. Now, somebody thought to get flash paper and fill it with gunpowder and scrunch it up. And then I would light it while Paul sang, do you feel all right during that song, and throw it over the heads of the audience so it would explode over their heads and it would scare them, right? He also makes note here that in those days, fire marshals did not pay attention to anything happening in clubs. We've never gotten into this discussion on the show, but there are things that will happen, obviously tragedies that will happen in years later that will really change the way pyrotechnics are thought of at all, whether it's an arena or a club or even an outdoor show. But of course, back here, nobody's paying attention to any of that. So they're literally putting gunpowder and flash paper and throwing it above the audience's head. Gene says, you could do all kinds of wild and unsafe stuff. And then he says on this podcast, what I'm about to tell you is the absolute truth. No exaggeration. This night, I did not throw the flash paper very well. Instead of throwing it above the heads of the audience, there was a poor guy who must have been standing on his seat. So he was taller than everybody else. And I remember that I hit him straight in the face. The thing exploded in front of the guy and he went down. And for the rest of the show, we're thinking, oh my God, this guy's going to sue us and we're cooked before we get started. It is going to end our lives. After the show, we're waiting backstage. We're buzzing. Oh my God, I hope everything's okay. And I swear to you, we hear a knock on the door. Door opens up. There's a guy who looks like the incredible melting man. The top of his forehead was melted over his eye. But he must have been, this is Gene talking, he must have been so high that he didn't feel the pain because he just looked at us and said, this is the best band I ever saw in my life. Wow, can I have your autographs? And we were like, uh, yeah, sure. The manager took him right away to the hospital and had him sign off. It could have ended our career right there, but needless to say, that was the only time we ever pulled that trick. So Kiss makes quite an impression that night. Uh, And the crazy thing is, it wasn't just Teenage Lust on the bill that night. So Teenage Lust was supposed to be in that opening slot where Kiss was, but this show was a three-band bill before Kiss was ever on it. Teenage Lust into Iggy and the Stooges, headlined by Blue Oyster Cult. And there's another little addendum story about Blue Oyster Cult. First of all, Blue Oyster Cult wasn't too scared by Kiss's antics because they had antics of their own for the night. Supposedly, they brought a... The, they were like at a restaurant down the street eating German food and there was like a oompa, oompa German band. You know what I mean? Playing in the restaurant and they were like, hey, will you come over to the venue and come out on stage with us for a song? And so that happens at some point. Also, there's like a motorcycle on stage at some point. Like it's a damn Judas Priest concert. But... There is this story that I read, sort of whether or not this is true, it puts a nice bow on everything. This guy named Carl Burke, who was 
working backstage in some capacity. We'll call him a stagehand. The story goes that he's standing by Buck Dharma from Blue Oyster Cult when Kiss comes off the stage that night. And he laughs or scoffs or something at how ridiculous everything was. And he says that Buck leans over to him and says, don't laugh. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Like, what makes you say that? And he goes, oh, we're probably going to be opening for those guys pretty soon. He says that to the roadie. And two years later, to the date, New Year's Eve, two years later, Blue Oyster Cult will open for Kiss at the Nassau County Veterans Coliseum in New York during the Alive Tour. Whew. Quite the New Year's Eve and quite a way to kick off a career that will go on to be, you know, love them or hate them. Kiss has had one, one hell of a ride. So there you go. A double shot of New Year's Eve stories for you on your holiday week. A little boss, a little kiss. Uh, I hope you like it. Um, let us know what you think. And if, if I've forgotten any New Year's Eve stories, or if you have a New Year's Eve story of your own about being at a Kid Rock concert on New Year's Eve, I don't know. Let us know. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. You can find us again on Instagram backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And uh, until next time, and into 2023, please keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.